knowing what you believe and why you believe it lies at the very heart of Christian experience, worship, and everyday living. The Bible's not about you. You're not David. Trouble in life is not Goliath. Jesus is going to be David in the shadow. Goliath is going to be sin and death. Who's that make you? Uh, and it doesn't make you the Israelites in the corner. Going, He's going to kill all of us. That's exactly who you are. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The gospel is that God the Son freely agreed to die our death for us, to suffer our deserved condemnation and doom in our place. And he didn't just agree from eternity to do it, he actually did it. It is fatal, fatal for us to think that we can ever move on from the gospel. The great problem in the evangelical church today where the scripture is concerned is not the inerrancy of the Bible. The great problem in the evangelical church today is the sufficiency of scripture. We don't think it's sufficient to do what we have to do. So we have to wake up what's happening and recognize that the problem really is our lack of theology. Hi and welcome to Theology Gals. I'm Colleen Sharp and Angela Whitehorn is my co-host and today we have a topic that is it's going to be uh, it's going to be a challenge to to keep this podcast short and when I was looking at all my notes I was like oh that is a lot of notes maybe we should have split this up into two (laughs) but we're going to be talking about worship just real quick before we get to today's topic I just wanted to mention again the the conference in New Jersey on suffering and I'll be speaking at one of the breakout sessions and Justin Peters will be speaking and a couple other people. There's There'll be information in the episode notes. So if you're in the area of Freehold, New Jersey or close enough to maybe drive up for the day, check that out. And uh, another thing, if you would like to support what we're doing here just to cover our monthly expenses and equipment and whatnot, uh, you can either... S- Give us a one-time donation on PayPal, and there's a little button on our website, theologygals.com, or you can support us monthly on Patreon. And we have a lot of people that you know donate a few dollars a month, and it it really does help us a lot. We got started; a lot of stuff came right out of my pocket, so it's nice to get some of our expenses covered. So, thank you to all of those that do support us. So. Today, we are going to be talking about worship, and I mentioned a few weeks ago that there was a conversation in the Theology Gals group, and I realized I think there might be some misunderstandings about what worship is. And we talked about the regulative principle of worship on another episode, and I can link it in the episode notes, and specifically talked about, and we'll talk briefly about regulative principle of worship on this episode if you don't know what that is, but we were really talking about what things are included in worship. And we will address that also on this podcast, but I really wanted to talk about what worship is and what worship is not. I'm sure, Angela, like me, you have just seen some not great examples yeah. <laughs> of worship. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Um you know, I, we've seen all kinds of crazy things in the corporate worship service. Um, I think I, I may have said this on an episode before. I've seen everything from flag waving as worship to, um, you know, churches canceling services and saying we're going to have a picnic and that's our worship instead. Just, um, just a very wide range of bizarre and... Um, incorrect ideas about what worship is. Yeah, you know, we talk a lot, when we talk about the Reformation and the Reformers, we talk a lot about justification by faith alone and the five solas and and maybe the doctrines of grace. But worship was a very important theme in the time of the Reformation. And this week I read a lot of Calvin because if you want to read on worship, he has some great things to say, because even at the time of the Reformation, 
he had, Calvin had concerns that matters of worship, that people wanted to please themselves more mm. than God. Yes. And isn't that sound familiar right now? And I just have a quick quote from him, and he says, and undoubtedly, this is the origin of all superstitions, that men are delighted with their own inventions and choose to be wise in their own eyes rather than restrain their senses in obedience to God. And that that's kind of going to be the theme of, of this whole episode is what does God say worship is and, and how we should worship? Yeah, I was reading some Calvin today uh, preparing for this episode, and, and it really is true that he was very concerned that um, that people were really designing worship around their own pleasure. And he makes a very strong case that that essentially makes it not worship anymore. It's, it's just um, an entertainment and a personal enjoyment exercise. Um, and so... I think that's something that we can, um, most of us really can relate to, um, especially Reformed folks having come out of evangelicalism. But I think sometimes, too, folks who are still in evangelicalism, I think we hear oftentimes people, I know this was true for me. When I was in a more broadly evangelical church, um, there were times when I would think, you know, I don't know about the fog machine. Is that really for God? And... But not having a theology to be able to say, yeah, the fog machine's out. Instead, what I was really thinking in my mind is, that doesn't make sense to me. I don't like it. And so I was thinking to myself, this is a preference issue. I guess it must be fine. And of course, what I'm saying right there is is very uh, lightly touching on regulative principle. And we're going to talk about way more than regulative principle. But I, I think this is a really important topic because almost all of us can relate to it. And... I think it's so, it should be such an important aspect of our faith, just like the Reformers emphasized how important worship was. And I, I can't remember which episode it was, but I remember um, we had, maybe you'll remember, Angela, we talked about how often the the Christian life is seen as this very individual thing that you do. And, you know, you show up for on Sunday morning for a little edification, but it's not central to your Christian uh, faith and practice. And so let's start out with uh, just kind of some basic definitions of what worship is. And you know me, I love looking it up in the Bible <laughs> dictionary. I'm going to be known for that. But and I only wrote down part of what they had, but it said chiefly and imminently the act of paying divine honors to the supreme being or the reverence and homage paid to him in religious exercises consisting in adoration, confession, prayer, thanksgiving, and the like. Um, I also saw a definition that worship is drawing near to the Holy One. Mm, yes, and I love what our Westminster Confession says in chapter 21. Um, this is from the first uh, paragraph. The light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, is good and does good, good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself, and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. That right there is, is such a great summary, too, of what mm -hmm. we're going to be talking about today because it does hit on the regulative principle mm -hmm. of worship, too, but also why we worship, we, why we worship and, and how we worship and we are going to talk very specifically about worship, and I have a lot of confession and catechism that we won't get to today, and if you'd like to read what the confession and catechism has to say, and um, I tr always try to link one of the sites that has the proof text where you can kind of click on, on the proof text and the verse pops up. I, I really appreciate those sites. Worship is important, and, you know, if you read through goodness, the Old Testament, you know 
that worship was extremely important. And yes, things have changed from the different ceremonial laws that were required in the Old Testament, but what hasn't changed is the importance of worshiping the one true God. Mm, Yes. Um, It's interesting. I was reading um, something this morning about uh, Calvin and worship, and um, there was an interesting thought in there that um, even in Calvin's time, he was, um, well, you've already talked about this a little bit. He was dealing with some things that um, in the church's worship that needed reforming, um, icons, music, um, all, all of the different elements of worship. He wrote um, quite a few um, forms for worship, liturgy for worship, and um it's, it was uh, a very interesting thought. Um, he was t- speaking about um, a different a different tradition that um, believed that really anything that is not uh, forbidden is fine for worship. And he was talking about how that ultimately always involves man's inventions being substituted for true worship. And um, he was talking about how Leviticus um, gives some forms for worship in the Old Testament. And he actually says, you know, just because Leviticus isn't in the New Testament doesn't mean that we don't um, still have forms for worship. And I thought that that was really brilliant because that is sort of an important way that we view the Scripture in uh, reform theology is that we view it as a whole. You know, we don't we don't take the New Testament and say that this is more important than the Old Testament. And I I just really enjoyed that thought because I think that that was speaking against an error that is still very prevalent today. Yeah, and it was amazing to me reading Calvin just how, and even some of Luther that they were dealing with versions of this in their time too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I, I wanted to go over some wrong understandings of worship before we kind of dig into a, a biblical understanding of worship. So I think this is a really big one. And even in our group, we've had situations where someone will say worship and people think it means the singing before the sermon. So if you've not been in a lot of typical evangelical churches today, their kind of liturgy, if, if you want to call it that, is, um, you know, you go and it's 20 minutes of singing. And and that's often referred to as a worship. I remember mm-hmm. as a teenager where people would say, I didn't like the worship at that church. And what they meant was the singing before the sermon. And, you know, when I was growing up, we actually called it the worship service. Mm-hmm. Because the whole entire service is worship. I don't really recall whether my church called it the worship service um, growing up, but I do I do sort of recall that we had worship team. I do think that the music was sort of called worship and the sermon was called the sermon. I definitely hear um, churches still, I've, I've been members of churches before that refer to the music as worship. You've got the worship leaders, um, mi- uh, worship ministers, and it's interesting because it does sort of give you that idea that worship is singing and everything else sort of falls into some other category. And, of course, um, we don't believe that that's correct. The entire worship service is um, what we would call worship. And I think a, a couple other, uh, I would say, a really kind of popular wrong view of worship is that worship is about experiencing something. Mm, Yes. That's definitely flowing out of worship being primarily about me. And of course, you know, this is a wrong understanding of worship, but it's not one that people will say explicitly. You know, no one's going around actually saying, hey guys, worship's about me. You know, we know better than that, but the attitude sneaks in. It's it's evident in the practices, you know, when, when um, just like you said, when the worship service um, time is almost all spent on singing with the lights out, with the swaying and the fog machine, and it's to um, encourage an emotional response from me, it, you know, what are we putting our focus on is 
it makes it about me. Um, even, you know, a lot of lyrics to a lot of songs that are sung in churches now are about what I conquer and you make me strong and all of these things that are ultimately about me. It's a, it's a definitely a wrong understanding um, driving from experience. Yeah, you see a big difference between just the rich words of some of the old hymns and some of the new worship songs. Like I've told this story before, in high school, my my friend and I realized one night that we, c- we could take several of the worship songs and just change, you know, Jesus to her boyfriend's name. And it worked yeah. for a lot of the songs. That That's not good. Yeah, definitely. That's... Um Definitely showing that those songs are um, an emotionalized and a romanticized view of God. And, um, you know, if you stack up a song like that against, let's say, a psalm, um, there really just is no comparison, you know? And I would say that some worship services also tend towards an entertainment sort of approach. And especially when you have like seeker sensitive worship services. So there the worship service is not for the corporate worship of God by his people, but rather to entertain people and keep them in. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what some of the church growth movement was all about. How do we get the people here and and keep them here like Willow Creek when they started that's a, that's a big mega church. They were one of the they were very influential in the 80s and 90s and uh, a lot of the mega church churches that were popping up, and my husband actually went there after he became a Christian, until R.C. Sproul spoke there and he bought Sproul's <laughs> books. But you know they had the skits, and they actually on Sunday mornings those were the outreach services. Yeah. And then they had like the um, services for people that are Christians on I think like Wednesday and Thursday nights, and. You know, so a lot of times, but even with the services that were for Christians, there was, I went to one once, um, it was just very entertaining. Sometimes you don't even want to sing along much because the music is so loud. You know, I can't even hear myself sing. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny you mentioned Willow Creek when uh, the church where I grew up, um, uh, well, where I live now is actually very near Willow Creek, um, but the church where I grew up um, is far away from here. Um, sent worship team members to the Willow Creek Conference several years in a row um, to pick up these techniques and sort of things. And, um, you know, one of the things that I remember is it didn't really just stop at the music. It extended into the sermon as well, just like you said, like sometimes turning it into skits instead. I remember a lot of object lessons, you know, the sermon includes a long period of time with a bunch of water and beakers getting poured, you know, back and forth, and it's supposed to teach you something, or there's a lot of ping pong balls, and there's a story here. And I even saw a video about a year ago um, at a very seeker-sensitive church um, where the pastor had a giant water gun and was spraying the congregation with the water gun. Um, and so it's very, very hard when you just isolate and think, okay, we're spraying a water gun in the worship service. Is this pleasing to God? It's very hard for me to arrive at a, yes, this is pleasing to God. Um, and so this is one of the things that I love about Reformed worship theology is that it gives me a theological, solid understanding for why, yeah, that's that's not okay. That is not what God has prescribed um, to worship him. Right. Is that more about me or is that more about God? <laughs> right. And the, the last one of these wrong views on worship, and this is not an exhaustive list at all, but... This is something that you will run into, and there may be even some of our listeners that hold to this, and that that's a neo-Calvinistic view that all of life is worship, and uh, that's something that that I don't believe in and Angela doesn't believe in. Mm, right, and of course, um, you know, the issue here is that that does not adequately distinguish between sacred and secular, and so when I have... Um, heard this all of life is worship. It's interesting you said neo-Calvinist. That is exactly um, 
the circles where I have heard this, um, my husband and I used to be members of a neo-Calvinist church for several years and um, definitely heard this type of talk, all of life is worship. And I'll tell you what this phrase was used to do ultimately is to downplay the importance of the gathered assembly. And so I, I remember there being a time when a pastor preached at this church that, hey, um, if your neighbor's yard needs mowed and you would like to do that on Sunday morning instead of come to church, I encourage you to do that. All of life is worship. And, um, of course, we would sharply disagree with that. Um, we, Of course, we are not against um, acts of mercy on the Sabbath. However, we do not believe that mowing your neighbor's lawn instead of going to the corporate gathering is a good substitute for corporate worship. It is not. Um, and so, you know, this this phrase, you know, like driving down the road and going the speed limit, that's worship. This is not distinguishing well between sacred and secular. And when we say worship, we mean something um, very specific. I, I'm thinking again of a quote of Calvin um, that I was reading uh, this week. And this is actually a statement by um, Robert Godfrey, talking about what Calvin believed about worship. He says, for Calvin, worship was not a means to an end. Worship was not a means to evangelize or entertain. Worship was an end in itself. And, you know, Calvin believed, and so do we, we think this is great theology, that worship is the key meeting place of God and his people. It is when, there's a thing that we call dialogical worship. It's dialogue, it's back and forth. If you read some of the liturgy, what is happening is that there is something from the Word of God, and then there's the congregation's response, and it's back and forth. It's God meeting with his people, and he promises to meet with us through the Word and sacraments. That's very special. It's very unique. It's not happening by yourself when you're driving down the road going the speed limit. It's very different categories. Um, And so we would say all of life is worship is a category error. And let me mention, if you're not familiar with the the label neo-Calvinist, uh, you can read about Abraham Kuyper, and you'll find some of what we talked about there in Kuyper's teaching. And I wanted to mention uh, a couple things also, that, that that's a more one-kingdom approach. And so they're using different categories altogether and a different approach altogether, where uh, we would hold to a more two-kingdom approach. But one of the things I wanted to address in talking about the all of life is worship, some people might say, but what about vocation? Because aren't we supposed to be doing all to the glory of God? And so that, but that is different when we're talking about doing all to the glory of God in our vocations, whether as moms or employees or um, all sorts of things, doing all to the glory of God is distinguished from what we're talking about um, when we're talking about worship here. You know, Scripture, uh, if you look in the Old Testament, uh, you know, a lot, I've, I've done some studying recently, you know, there's, there's talk of idolatry, you know, so who we worship is, is important. And there's so many verses, even in Matthew 4.10, then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and and him only. So and I think in, in regards to idolatry, uh, we've talked about idolatry on other times, but I have this quote from John Knox all worshiping, honoring, or service invented by the brain of man in the religion of God without his own express commandment is idolatry. The mass is invented by the brain of man without any commandment of God. Therefore, it is idolatry. So um, even you'll see in the Old Testament them worshiping false gods. But I think we also need to think in terms of of idols that we have. And then... Um, so we have who who we worship and then how we worship. And we're going to kind of talk about that right now. Right. Um, just talking about the wrong understandings of worship before we leave that. Um, one thing that I hear often, um, even sometimes I hear this criticism within Reformed circles, 
is that reformed worship is devoid of feeling or emotion. And um, I think we've talked about this on some other episodes, but I just want to say again that that's really not true. Um, and I, I found it really wonderful in my reading this week that um, John Calvin um, actually felt that there should be a wide range of emotion in our worship. And he was speaking a little bit against a different view that really elevated the emotion of joy and elation in worship above all else. And so he says that we should experience a wide range of emotion. We should experience lament. Um, We should experience brokenness over sin. We should experience rejoicing and um, just a wide range. I have a quick little quote here from Calvin. For the principle which the Stoics assume, and that's a a philosophy that says that we shouldn't experience or express emotions, uh, that all the passions and perturbations and like diseases is false and has its origin in ignorance. For either to grieve or to fear or to rejoice or to hope is by no means repugnant to reason. So emotions and reason are not set against one another, nor does it interfere with tranquility and moderation of mind. It is only excess or intemperance which corrupts what would else be pure. And surely grief, anger, desire, hope, fear are affectations of our unfallen nature implanted in us by God and such as we may not find fault with without insulting God himself. So he's saying, God gave you emotions. They came from him. And so to completely eschew all emotion and say, you know, we don't experience any emotions in our worship, that would be insulting to God. We do experience emotions in our worship, and that is a part of how we worship God. I think one of the problems with what we see a lot around us is that experiencing something, uh, experiencing some sort of emotion, and I think it's often not even joy necessarily, but some sort of euphoria. We've talked about how some of even the way that music is written, the actual music, is intended to produce the to result in those emotions in the hearer, and so I think it's very different even in the emotions that we're speaking of here and we see we see emotions being experienced in scripture i mean read the psalms there there's a lot of emotion going on there and talking of worshiping the lord so um we're going to talk just now how we should worship john 4 23 and 24 says but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And I was thinking this week, really what that must mean, to worship in truth. So if we're told to worship in truth, where is our standard for truth? Mm, It's the word of God. Yes, it's the word of God. Right. And so... So we're told to worship in truth, and uh, where do we get truth? From the Word of God. You know, I love that thought because um, one of the things that I read was about um, Calvin's four principles for worship. And if you um, go out looking in his writings for, you know, uh, where he's written an article that says, here's the four principles for worship, you're not going to find that. He he doesn't really summarize it quite that way. But these are um, sort of some scholars have pulled the principles that he repeatedly comes back to over and over in his institutes and his other writings. But the four uh, principles that he um, pushes on um, with our worship, the primary one is that the word of God must be central. And so we read the word, we sing the word, we preach the word, and we see the word in the administration of the sacraments. And that is because we are commanded to worship God in spirit and in truth. And our source of truth is the word of God. And we should mention, if you do read Calvin, you'll find that Calvin even uses the phrase, the rule of worship, when he um, speaks of it. You know, something that I was really convicted of, and I was newly reformed, so I hadn't thought this through a lot, but just the lack of reverence that there is sometimes in in worship services, especially some of the, the modern evangelical ones, and 
Hebrews 12, 28 says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. And so thinking even reverence and awe in our worship. Yes, absolutely. Um, Going back to those emotions, one of the things that Calvin said about those emotions is that, you know, talking about worshiping in spirit and in truth, one of the fruits of the spirit is self-control. And so we are able to experience emotion and experience a response to what God is saying to us in the, in the service through his word. We experience a response and we also have self-control and we do things decently and in order. Um, and that is part of having that reverence. Um, so speaking of, of reverence and what it is from the Bible dictionary, we have the root idea of reverence is fear. It is used to express the attitude towards God himself as is in Psalms 89.7, and respect or honor paid to a worthy object. And that, I think, is, is very, and a very important aspect of worship. We're told to fear God, like in the definition that, that you read. And I did want to mention, I didn't want to neglect to mention, and we're mention, I know we're mentioning Calvin so much, it's just because he wrote so much great stuff on worship. But Calvin actually saw worship primarily is something that God does. Mm, and yes. and our approach to worship is connected to our covenant theology. So it, he saw it as something God does, namely a confirmation of his covenant to his assembled people. Right. And going back to that idea of dialogical worship, you know, a lot of people today are looking for what is God saying to me? What is, uh, you know, hearing God speak? Um, and this is where God speaks, is through his word And in the worship um, service, that's where we can um, access that. And we believe that God is doing something for us through his word. Um, This is a quote from Robert Godfrey. In the simplicity of the Spirit's power, Christ is present among his people in the preaching and the sacraments. That's special. Christ has promised um, to be there in those things in a way that's very different from when I'm just in my home um, or when I'm driving down the road. You know, the article that Angela's quoted from, from Robert Godfrey, where he talks about Calvin and worship, we're going to link that in the episode notes. And I'm going to link a section from Calvin's Institutes that I really appreciate. And it's actually regarding the law. But uh, Calvin talked about the first four commandments as relating to the worship of God. And we've spoken before about how the Ten Commandments are uh, split into the first table of the law and the second table of the law. So the first table of the law being the first four commandments. So those specifically, he believed, having to do with the worship of God. Calvin said that we say then that the worship of God is the beginning of and foundation of righteousness. So when we're talking about obedience to the law of God and righteousness, Calvin is saying worship is important to that. So part of our obedience as believers and gratitude for what Christ has done is worship. Right. And, you know, this is going to that third use of the law. Um, I also read a little bit of the chapter that we're talking about um, from Calvin's Institutes, and he talks about how that third use of the law is for believers. And so it's it's very, um, it's just beautiful. It's nice and neat the way that the worship service is the assembly of gathered of believers. And that's where we are going to be stirred up with affection and stirred up towards love and good deeds to obey that uh, the law, the first table. I have a, another quote. I know we have so many quotes, but there's so many <laughs> so good, good ones by people smarter than us. And this is from Zacharias Ursinus. And he says, it must be commanded by God. No creature has the right or power to institute the worship of God, but good works, we speak of moral good, and the worship of God are the same. So there again, just like Calvin, 
this is part of our obedience to God, that that we worship him and He wor- we worship him in the ways that he's commanded. One of the things I'm going to link, um, like I said earlier, all the Reformed catechisms and confessions that address worship. But one, of, I am going to link Westminster Shorter Catechism 45 through 62, where it talks about the commandments. And I, there's, I'm not going to read all of it, um, but you can see how it connects to worship by reading what's in these uh, catechism questions. So on 96, it says, what does God require in the second commandment? We are not to make an image of God in any way, nor to worship him in any manner other than he has commanded in his word. So it's not just, we we often talk about the second commandment in regards to the fact we should not make images or pictures of Jesus and or any depictions of the Trinity, but it's also about the correct worship of God. Mm, yes, that's right. Um, and it's very... Uh, interesting to think back to Calvin's time that there was a lot of um, reforming to be done in terms of getting icons out of the church. Um, You know, back in, if you can think and imagine back to that time, most people would not have had their own personal Bible. So they would not have had access to the Word of God um, at their home, you know, at their kitchen table. And many people could not read. So the church in those days used a lot of icons to sort of teach people stories and um, morality. All, you know, a lot of religious art in, in those days would teach people a moral. And um, so this was part of the reforming of the church was getting those images out of the church because they would include images of God. And that's ultimately would be idolatry because using those and putting those in front of people, especially in worship. But, you know, we believe at all times there's not to be any images of God. Um, Those had to be removed. And then, um, you know, even the design of the churches was changed and the pulpit made central. If you walk into a Reformed church today, you should see that the pulpit will be front and center and everything about the way that that church is designed drives your um, attention to the pulpit where the Word of God is going to be central instead of images. Um, And so we believe that that is a way that we uphold the second commandment, just like it is in this catechism question, um, and a way that we honor God in worshiping Him in the way that He has commanded us. You know, I know a lot of people, Angela, the idea that we should not depict any members of the Trinity as new, especially because of how common pictures of Jesus are. Mm -hmm. And we've gotten a lot of pushback, even in our group. We don't really allow uh, at this point for people to fight, to argue for using images. But I think for a lot of people, it's a, it's a new idea that maybe grew up in in modern evangelicalism. And I grew up being taught that those images were wrong. And I've said this on the podcast before, since my father was a convert from Orthodox Judaism, and he would he would talk to all of our pastors about why the images were, yeah, were wrong. And But one thing I do think about, and we won't spend much time on this, but one thing I think about is what is the intention of those images? Yeah, it is to eventually bring you to worship. Mm-hmm. Um, so people will say, "But I don't worship the images." We we are told not to even create things that we do worship, so we don't depict that what we worship, and and we don't know what Jesus looked like. So <laughs> there right. we go. And I, you know, I did not grow up being taught that images of Jesus were a second commandment violation. I came to that conviction as an adult, um, reading the book Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And in fact, that was my very first Reformed conviction. I didn't even know that there was a word called Reformed. I didn't know J.I. Packer was Reformed. I was just at a regular evangelical evangelical church, and we were reading that uh, as that book as a book study. And I remember it was very challenging for most of the people in the, in the group, um, not just that chapter, but actually uh, some of the concepts in a lot of the different chapters. But that chapter in, in specific, I think, got a lot of pushback. But I remember being convicted by it and thinking, oh, yes, this makes a lot of sense and uh, really understanding and believing that 
images of Jesus are a second commandment violation. Um, I want to read this quote by Robert uh, from Robert Godfrey's um, article, and he's actually quoting Calvin. But this is this is about. So I want to read this quote. Um, it relates a little bit to what we were just talking about with second commandment violations. And, you know, we were specifically talking about images of Jesus in worship and getting those, um, you know, Calvin reforming the church. But we're going to move into talking a little bit about the regulative principle. And this quote is really uh, related. This is John Calvin. I know how difficult it is to persuade the world that God disapproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned by his word. The opposite persuasion, which cleaves to them, being seated, as it were, in their very bones and marrow, is that whatever they do has in itself a sufficient sanction, provided it exhibits some kind of zeal for the honor of God. I think we can all relate to that. That sounds like the normative principle, which is most of evangelicalism in America. That we believe those uh, under the normative principle believe that as long as I exhibit some kind of zeal for the honor of God, then it's fine. Calvin goes on, but since God not only regards as fruitless, but also plainly abominates whatever we undertake from zeal to his worship, if it is at variance with his command, what do we gain by a contrary course? The words of God are clear and distinct. Obedience is better than sacrifice. So um, this is a very strong quote. It just really gripped me when I read it. Um, this is an explanation of why we hold to the regulative principle. You know, I I was thinking this week, wouldn't we want to worship God in the way he's ways he's commanded? Wouldn't wouldn't we want to do that? And he's given us ways that we are to worship him. So the regulative principle of worship and really Westminster Confession of Faith says it very well, but the Acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. So basically, the regulative principle of worship is that we worship God in the ways that he's commanded. That's exactly right. Um, you know, we we bring the, the sacrifice that he has asked for. Um, we obey. To obey is better than sacrifice. So we do what God has told us to do in worshiping him, um, believing that that is the worship that he will accept. And these are the things that specifically, you know, the Lord commanded. And uh, there, there is, the Westminster does speak of, of both um, corporate worship and private worship. And so I thought we should address that a little bit. Corporate worship is corporate Sabbath worship. We do believe that there is a that we don't just do the corporate worship service on Friday night or Wednesday afternoon, that there is a time, and that is the Sabbath, that we're to keep the Sabbath holy, and it's to be set apart uh, from other days. So we take up worshiping the Lord and rest, and we rest from our worldly labors. Of course, there are duties of necessity and mercy, so one of our a group admins, her husband's a nurse, and they're Sabbatarians, but people get sick on the Sabbath. Right. Um, I think it's important for um, folks who may be new to Reformed theology to catch the distinction. We are not taking the Old Testament Sabbath laws and transporting them into, into today and saying we are going to live like Old Testament Israel on the Sabbath, sun up to sundown, and all of those sorts of things. We are, it's, it's completely different um, in attitude. It is not about what you can't do. It's about what we have the joy of being able to do, and that is setting aside the entire day to be taken up in the worship of God. And I wanted to talk about just some of the elements of corporate worship that will be familiar to some of you, especially in Reformed churches. Now, in every Reformed church I've been in, there's always a call to worship. And I think it's in the directory for public worship in a, a lot of the Reformed churches, what elements should be present. But a call to worship 
is, uh, so there is a specific time. In fact, usually uh, our churches will do announcements even before the call to worship. And then there's, there's prayers and singing of psalms and hymns, reading of the law and the gospel. Um, we do a, a corporate confession and absolution. And there, so this isn't a specific liturgy, just elements. So there's usually, in Reformed churches, there's lots of prayers usually. And then a doxology. And, and those calls, calls to worship and doxology often come right out of Scripture. Uh, that is definitely how they are at, at my church. They're, the call to worship and the doxology are usually directly from Scripture. Um, a lot of times the prayers will be um, contain portions of Scripture or um, maybe a paraphrase of some Scripture. Um, if you're singing psalms and hymns, a lot of times, of course, the psalms are directly from the Word of God. Um, the hymns are teaching us doctrine from the Word of God. Um, reading of the law and the gospel is um, often directly from the word. Or, you know, sometimes in a Reformed church, um, we also recite um, creeds or portions of our confession or portions of our um, catechisms. Um, the confession and absolution, and you know, at my church, um, I'm not sure if it's like this at your church too, Colleen, um, we have um, the confession of sin and the promise of forgiveness. That is a favorite part for me of the service. I've never been to a church before in the evangelical world that that did that part of uh, the service. And so it's, I, I really appreciate that because it... Um, it goes back to that dialogical worship. It's confession. I'm saying, um, you know, God, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. And the minister of God's word says back, here's the promise that if you trust in Christ, he forgives you. Um, it's very beautiful. It's, a, it's the gospel um, woven throughout the service. And I, I have another just little list. Prayer, one thing that is important is that includes giving of praise and thanks and confession of sin. And we have reading of scripture and, you know, often the pastor will, will read the law and gospel, or there may be um, a congregational reading and then sound preaching. But remember that we are participants in this. We, we are hearing the word and singing of Psalms and hymns and, and then the sacraments, due administration and worthy receiving of the sacraments. So these are things that are are part of worship. These are things that God specifically commanded and are important aspects. And it's important to remember, we did an episode a few weeks ago on the means of grace, and God is at work in us. He is demonstrating his grace towards us through the sacraments, through the preached word, through the worship of God. You know, uh, you're just talking about prayer and all of these things under the heading of prayer. I wonder if our listeners noticed you mentioned the singing of the Psalms with grace in the heart as a form of prayer. That was a belief of Calvin's that um, he actually talks about prayer with and without music. Um, and so I, that was very beautiful to me to, to think of singing Psalms as a form of prayer to God. And when you think about the giving of praise and thankfulness to God, sometimes we do that through song. Uh, singing a lot of the psalms, we'll find that. I wanted to just mention briefly, because I know these questions will come up, and that is both private worship and family worship. Because even Westminster does uh, talk about private worship. So we, we aren't saying that there is no worship outside of the Sunday morning service, that there are times we may set aside for prayer and the reading of God's word and, and song, uh, you know, so I may read, read scripture. And, and so we, we aren't, I don't know, uh, I haven't read a lot on, on that aspect, to be honest, because um, I was focusing more on the other stuff this week. But uh, there, there are other times that that we may worship and family worship is is an example of that. I know in our family worship it's usually seeing we we 
do a lot of psalms, um, and then maybe sing a psalm or a hymn, prayer, reading of scripture. We usually discuss, so it's different than a corporate worship. And we do distinguish between corporate worship and what might be your family worship or your own time of reading scripture. We can't say, you know, I'm not going to go to church this morning just because I don't feel like it. And so instead, I'm just going to read scripture and that will be my worship today. Um, Right, because we're not partaking of the liturgy in the worship service. We're not partaking of the um, preaching of the word, the sacraments, when we're having private worship. It doesn't mean that we don't believe that we should have private worship. We do. Um, just that, as you said, we distinguish between what is going on when we are doing private worship and what is going on when we are doing um, corporate worship. You know, I, I cannot remember who I heard um, teach this, but it was a Reformed um, teacher talking about that when we are in the corporate gathering, we are rehearsing for what we're going to be doing in the new heavens and the new earth. And... Um, I think that's a beautiful thing because it helps me with that distinct distinction. You know, that's very, very different than sitting at my kitchen table reading um, my Bible verses for the day, um, joining with other believers in corporate worship, rehearsing for what we will be doing together for eternity. Um, it's very special and set apart and different. And I do think that the corporate aspect is is so important, and that's emphasized very much in Scripture. We have so many people that it's kind of like, Jesus and me, I just have a hard <laughs> time with the church. So I just I just can't go to church because I just, you know, just the people there. Yeah. Like them. And throughout Scripture, you see an emphasis on the people of God as a corporate body, you know, with Israel and and with the church. So those are um, really important aspects of our faith and should be. Well, we have a lot of resources if this is a topic you want to read more on. And I, I do, like I said earlier, appreciate the Confession Catechism with the scripture proof text, and I'll link those in a lot that weren't even mentioned that have to do with the worship of God. So uh, coming up in the next few weeks, I'm, I'm not even totally sure, but we have some guests coming up and we are going to do something um, at least the next couple months. Um, in the next few weeks, we'll be releasing a bonus episode about a new Christian book that's out. And I'm not sure, maybe release that on a Wednesday. So you might see an extra episode coming out soon. So thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next week.